Hey guys, hope you're all doing well. Um, I'm literally sitting in my cupboard as I record this in a bid to kind of reduce the noise and echo and bounce off the walls in my room. I've got like a duvet draped over the two doors. It's kind of like kind of like a little fortress. It's pretty cool. Um, but it's not massively comfortable, so I hope it makes a difference. Oh, and uh, another quick note, I am recording this on my flat, and I've got two very noisy flatmates. So if you hear any funky noises going on in the background, blame it on them. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Edwick. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the University of Edinburgh. If you'd like to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USI. You can also drop us an email at usi.podcast at gmail.com. Today we bring you the third part of our four-part mini-series on coronavirus, in which we're exploring what it's like to do science during a pandemic, and diving into the incredible response from scientists and students from the University of Edinburgh. We're speaking to Jamie Davies, who is a professor of experimental anatomy. His lab researches how complex organs form from simple beginnings with the hope that one day we'll be able to construct organs ready-made for transplant. Professor Davies, with the help of his team, also runs two large databases, one of which has been really useful in fighting COVID-19. Back in April, we had a great chat over Zoom about the work that he does, about the databases he runs, and about how science might change as a result of the pandemic. Today we're focusing on coronavirus, but we'll be publishing the rest of our conversation in a later episode, so uh, keep your ears peeled. That's not even a saying, is it? Sounds a bit gross, to be honest, and I wish I'd never said it. Anyway, um, before we dive in, if you missed the last episode, you should go and check it out. We spoke to Jess Cox from Augment Bionics, who told us about their 3D printing operation, mass-producing personal protective equipment for the NHS. It's a super interesting episode, and the work they're doing is so cool. And if that's not enough to pique your interest, we've got high school drama, red wine controversies, and sci-fi film pitches to Ridley Scott, so you'd be daft to miss it. To find all other episodes and show notes, head to our website at usi.org or subscribe on your platform of choice. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. This is Professor Jamie Davies. So first things first, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and kind of the the main research focus of your lab? Well, my name is Jamie Davis, and my position is Professor of Experimental Anatomy, which probably makes me sound like a contortionist. (laughs) It comes from some of the work that we do in the group, which is around working out how to program cells to build new anatomies. So some of that is about building, for example, trying to build replacement organs. Kidneys are the ones that we work on most because, of course, people with kidney disease may need a transplant. Mm -hmm. There's a shortage of transplantable organs, and also um, there are immune problems about getting matches. So the dream of being able to take a patient's stem cells and to be able to build them kidneys from their own cells would be very nice. Mm -hmm. So that's one side of it. And then the other side is... Um, is something we call synthetic biology. I mean, the the field called synthetic biology, which is to 
to program cells that don't know how to build a particular thing so that they do. So we're effectively reprogramming development. Um, mm-hmm. I do that because I think it's the best way of finding out do we understand development. If we understand it, we should be able to, to build new things with our understanding. And of course. for me, the most interesting moments are when, when, when we get it wrong when the yeah. thing doesn't work and then you realize, oh, okay, so it's <laughs> not like that at all. We need to go back and ask a better question. And then the other side of the lab, for almost accidental reasons, we run a very large um, drug database, the main one for IUFA. That's the International Union of Pharmacology. And that's a WHO-created organization. And the database that we run from the lab contains the information on, well, all prescribed drugs, but also a lot of research compounds and about their targets and things. And that's something, it was started by um, a colleague of mine, the late Tony Hamar, many years ago. And we, we carry on with that, and that's, that, you know, that keeps growing. When it comes to controlling an outbreak, like the current COVID-19 pandemic, there are three things that we can do. The first is public health interventions, such as the current lockdown. Secondly, and probably the most effective, is vaccination. This allows us to confer immunity to the population without people having to actually catch the disease. Unfortunately, vaccine development takes a long time, and it'll be a while until we can reach a stage where we can roll out a successful vaccine. The quickest vaccine that we ever developed was for mumps, and that took four years. With coronavirus, there has been talk of pushing through a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. In the meantime, it's really important that we can effectively treat patients who are severely affected by COVID-19. And this brings us to our third option, drugs. If we can find drugs and therapies that help treat coronavirus, then we can reduce the number of people severely affected by the disease. Trouble is, drug development is a notoriously slow process. So instead, a lot of treatment strategies have emerged to potentially repurpose drugs that we already know about. Like any other organism, viruses exist in a family of related species. We can use this knowledge and knowledge of the structure and genomics of SARS-CoV-2 to see if we can employ drugs that work on related viruses. It's also important to see if currently used drugs are actually doing more harm than good. So to keep on top of all these rapidly emerging developments, Professor Davies and his team set up an entirely new section of the Guide to Pharmacology database dedicated solely to COVID-19. So yeah, I wanted to talk um, about the the new section of the Guide to Pharmacology database that you set up in the wake of uh, COVID-19. What were you aiming for um, for this, this new section? Yeah, so what we were aiming for, I suppose it was, well, the, the simple answer is just to have a living, very, very rapidly updated summary of everything that seems to be known with reasonable certainty about the pharmacology of COVID-19. So right at the beginning, that typically meant concentrating on the drug targets. Um, so viral proteins, for example, that the drugs might target their function, um, or the targets where it was already becoming clear that the immune response of the, of the human was part of the story, yeah. and targets that might change the immune response. And some of, this, some of the targets were, you know, part of it is, can we find drugs that can be useful? And some of the questions were, are there drugs that patients might be on now, which, which make them particularly vulnerable? Because that's another question. It's a less asked one, but a very important one. And we, you know, we worried about, as it, t- as it turned out, um, not with justification. But we knew that the main, the main way that the virus infects cells is its spike protein interacts with a molecule called ACE2 on, on cells, particularly the cardiovascular system, but like yeah. in a few other places as well. Um, 
And we knew that a class of blood pressure reducing drugs called ACE inhibitors caused there to be more ACE2 expression in the body. So we and other people had an had a immediate worry about, do ACE inhibitors make you more vulnerable? Actually, some data coming out from Wuhan suggests in a relatively small post hoc clinical trial, so that's looking backwards, it suggests the opposite, that the people who are on the ACE inhibitors were actually somewhat protected. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, that's people are not put on ACE inhibitors willy-nilly. Those are people who have cardiac conditions. So yeah. it, it's not a full randomized controlled trial, but at least it's enough to say, no, they, they were not at enhanced risk. So there were a few worries like that right at the beginning. Uh, and then the rest of it was, you know, finding finding drugs that might interact with this virus. So there are other antiviral drugs that, that affect viral proteases, for example, as part of our life cycle. Um, there's a drug which has been in the news a lot, chloroquine, which affects mm. when the drugs enter cells, they go into a pathway of, of, of closed sort of bags of membrane in the cells, vesicles. And in that pathway, they uncoat and become activated. And chloroquine messes up the way that pathway works. It's a dangerous drug. It has very bad cardiovascular effects. Yeah. And we were following that intensely because particularly a few people have tried it in humans. There's one person in France who has become an evangelist for it, although um, I'm trying to work out how to put this tactfully. The, the data are, are, are by no means um, fully persuasive. So there were, there were things like that. Uh, and, and essentially, that just being given the task by you for WHO of trying to find a reasonable prioritized list of which drugs which already exist so they can already be used in humans ought to be tried. In the short term, repurposing existing drugs could be incredibly useful. But Professor Davies stressed the need for continued development of new drugs as well. The other side of it is, is for the development of new drugs. Um, so things that are not already licensed for humans. He recently co-authored a paper charting a roadmap for future research and development of COVID-19 drugs and therapies. The purpose of the paper is to inform clinical drug trials by presenting what we know so far in an effort to guide which approaches to treatment might work best. In a blog discussing the paper, Professor Davies stressed that although there has been a lot of talk of vaccines in the press, there are really important reasons to continue pharmacological research. The first is simply that there is no vaccine yet, but there are some drugs now. The second is that getting a vaccine isn't necessarily a certainty. Of course, we all hope there will be a vaccine to this. We know that's going to be about a year away. We all hope there will be a vaccine to HIV. There never has been. Um, you know, it's, it's not a given. At the moment, politicians are speaking as if it's certain there will be a vaccine. Of course, we very much hope there will be, but it's dangerous to think it's a given. The huge improvement in control of HIV has been done by designing drugs. Uh, if we have to do that, and, and the sad thing about HIV is that it's not really eliminated in most cases, so people have to then for, take them for a long time. If we can design drugs to control how badly see, um, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the thing that causes COVID-19, affects people, um, uh, it, the drugs wouldn't have to be tolerated for life probably because the infection will go away again. Yeah, then yeah. that could be the quickest thing to do. But also, if the vaccine doesn't come along, that actually might be all we have. Yeah. And there is that risk. It's a risk not being talked about very much. So keeping the pharmacological effort going and moving to new drugs. You know, at the moment, test compounds that are already sort of in databases with a lot of data but are not yet, re- yet fully registered drugs are the way to go. But then there's also another tranche of, well, can we develop entirely new compounds which would be even better? 
Another important reason to continue pharmacological research into COVID-19 is that vaccines are only useful against one specific virus, whereas drugs can be useful against whole families of viruses. SARS-CoV-2 is not the first coronavirus that we've had to reckon with, as you might have guessed by the name, SARS-CoV-2. The SARS epidemic of 2002 and 2003 was caused by SARS-CoV-1, but frustratingly, pharmacological research into the virus dried up in the months that followed. You get this horrible feeling of deja vu reading papers now, because there was a lot of work on that virus, and that virus is 79% identical to SARS-CoV-2. And had, had that carried on pushing forward, we probably would have had the drugs by now. We'd have yeah. had them you know, a decade. Um, the frustration is that when the disease more or less went away, then the effort into developing the drugs all went away. Because obviously, you know, I'm not being an apologist for drug companies, but they're not going to develop something they can't sell. So when writing the script for this episode, I came across some news which proved Professor Davies's point exactly. A recent early-stage clinical trial has found that a drug called SNG001, catchy, I know, which was originally developed to treat viral infections in asthmatics but never made it to market, has been repurposed to treat COVID-19. The study of 101 people found that patients were 79% less likely to develop a severe form of the disease. Richard Marsden, the chief executive of Synergen, the company that developed the drug, had this to say, and I quote, Imagine if we had done this work five years earlier. This drug could have been stockpiled by governments. When coronavirus emerged in Wuhan, we could have given this to all healthcare workers and anyone exposed on cruise ships or elsewhere. End quote. The hope of researchers like Professor Davies and Richard Marsden is that this pandemic can spur some positive changes in how we do science. One of the things I really hope comes out of this model, not just for antivirals, but also for antibiotics, is that the role of the state in protecting people in health, part of it is saying to drug developers, whether academic or companies, look, we want, you know, we want antibiotics of this kind. We want antivirals that will deal with this whole class of viruses. We want, you know, whatever it is. We, we know there's no disease right now that needs them. We will pay you this much for this stock and mm-hmm. this guarantee that you can produce again so that you can quickly fire up a factory. Yeah. And we'll get, you know, you, be all, you, you're commercial. By all means in competition, we'll pay the winning company this and the second place company that and the rest of you, sorry, bad luck. You know, I mean, you, you can make it fully commercial. We, we, yeah. We're not talking about nationalizing the drug industry. <laughs> but, but to be able to do that so that we don't have this thing that we're going through now of reading papers thinking, oh, I practically read this before in 2003. Mm-hmm. And if only... One, one thing that has struck me is just kind of the pace of how, how, scientific, how quickly scientific research has had to move uh, in these times, because it's quite unprecedented, really. And yes, and it's very interesting. You know, one of, the, one of the foundations of the way that normal academic research happens, not just in science, but in everything else, is peer review. Yeah. You know, typically, you, you, you do your work in the lab, and, and you, you make whatever discovery you think you've made, and you write it up in a paper, and you send the paper off to a journal, and then they will send it to at least two independent reviewers who are in your field, and they will take a look at it and, you know, and either say, oh, that's really great, or more typically say, well, it's kind of okay, but you need a better control for that experiment, and that graph isn't plotted properly, and you've used the wrong statistics, and so forth. And that acts as a kind of 
well, it, I mean, it's no barrier against fraud because if somebody just lies, then they lie. That won't be detectable. But it's a barrier against inadvertent mistakes that mean that something would, would without peer review, be published and give a misleading scientific result. Yeah. Well, peer review takes months, typically. I mean, even, even journals that say they do it quickly take a month. So we're not in the response to this crisis. Everything is being put onto the web. I mean, even when it's being submitted to a journal, people are releasing, even journals are releasing the pre-peer-reviewed version because it's so important. And it's really interesting to see science moving so quickly, using this sort of stuff. And it's sort of interesting and dangerous because it, you know, there's a great deal of rubbish and snake oil out there. I mean, leave, leaving aside the absolute snake oil that's infecting the internet with miracle drugs, <laughs> even, even things that look a lot like scientific papers from places that jolly well ought to be producing scientific papers, there are some hair-raising things out there. And one of the roles, I suppose, of, of bodies like WHO and IUFAR is to sort of screen this. So what's happening is that, is that we have... We have um, a pre-screening of a lot of these papers on sites like our database so that so that experts can do a very fast peer review. It's not what they do for the journals, but they're spotting obvious charlatanism at any rate and really howling mistakes. And I suppose that's part of the role of these databases to sort of think, well, this information can clearly go in, you know, with a warning, it's pre-peer review. Then there's another set which which sort of gets attached with really big warnings about their concerns. And then there's other stuff which, frankly, we're not going to put in until, until something more sensible comes along. And, and so, sometimes, the, you know, sometimes the data are unsafe, not because anybody's been stupid, but because, you know, especially clinical trials, the trial was so small. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard a lot that a lot of the, the experiments that are taking place, the trials, they have promising results, but it's just the, there's just not enough data to actually make any sort of valid conclusions from that, reliable conclusions. A week or so ago, I was in a teleconference with CN Fars, who are the, um, the, the leaders of the, the Chinese Pharmacological Society. And they gave some wonderful presentations about what they'd been doing, particularly in Wuhan mm -hmm. and the trials. But they were, I mean, the, the, in a certain, the sense of the conversation was about them handing the work over to Europe for the very happy reason that they're running out of patients. The disease is under control so much. They're saying, well, actually, we don't have hospitals full of patients to do these trials on anymore. You know, there are now so few people who are getting sick. We can't do any more work on this, whereas you guys have now got the huge problem, so please, you take it on. It, it, was, it was actually very heartening to feel, well, you know, that's, it, it's really nice to feel that, that things are turning around in some parts of the world. We had a conversation with people who are doing vaccine development, and they were sort of saying they're in an absolutely breakneck hurry in the UK, because obviously you can't give people the virus to test a vaccine. <laughs> but what you can do is take a bunch of health workers, randomize them, give some of them the vaccine, some of them not. Mm -hmm. They're all going to be pretty exposed because of the job they're doing, and then ask how many of them actually went down and how many of them were down as in got, got symptoms, yes. and how many of them then develop serious symptoms, which is a way of testing the vaccine. But you can only do that kind of test if there are plenty of people who are being exposed to COVID-19. So once we get on top of the epidemic and it closes down, then actually it becomes harder to test the vaccines that we need desperately in order to be able to lift all of the restrictions. So science is actually having to move absurdly fast. And there are really interesting discussions about what corners can you cut and what can you absolutely not cut. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and it's sort of childish to say you can't cut anything. 
because clearly things have to be done very quickly. Yeah, and I guess before this was all happening, there wasn't necessarily the the kind of the willpower or even the the necessity to kind of cut those corners. Sometimes I feel yeah. like you need something like this to kind of stimulate, you know, changes that can be made for the better. Yeah, I mean, some of them are not really for the better. I think there's a lot wrong with peer review at the moment, but it's still it's still better than the alternative of not having it. And anybody who does the random web search will be rapidly convinced about how bad things can be if there are no barriers. <laughs> um, but but I suppose it's just a case of accepting. You know, it's a little bit like emergency medicine in a field hospital. You do, you don't have what you have in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, but you get by with what you have because there's an emergency. And, and that's the spirit of it, you know, and part of all, all scientists, all the time we deal with uncertainty. But I think it just accentuates the fact that people are having to make rapid decisions on uncertain, noisy data. I think there's, there's been so much um, with this pandemic that we've realised we don't have to do it the way that it's always been done. Um, yeah. that, you know, it's people teaching from home, stuff yes. like that, you know, and a lot of, a lot of jobs that have been able to be moved on to like digital platforms and stuff like that. So I think it's interesting. Do you yes. think, do you hope that science will, do you think it will change as a response to this pandemic? Well, one thing I'm really hoping for is that there's a lot, an awful lot less jetting around the world. People yeah. are getting holding not just little, you know, conferences with six or seven people, but are holding real conferences electronically. And, you know, far too much of scientific life. I mean, I, I, I tend to avoid long distance travel, but, but that's just me being grumpy and belligerent. <laughs> but, but far too much scientific life is spent waiting around at airports. Um, and, and it's, you know, for, for climate reasons, for time reasons, efficiency reasons, it's silly. You know, of course, sometimes there's a need for a face-to-face meeting. But, but with there being fewer of them, they'll probably be higher quality. You know, yeah. there, there, there is a bit of a conference circuit that develops where everybody speaks the same talks at each other in L.A. and in Washington <laughs> and in Rome. And, and, and you just kind of think, look, you all know by heart what you're all saying to each other now. It may be a different set of grad students being yeah. born. Yeah, so I hope that will change. Um, I think the ability of academia and industry to work together in a hurry, that's been amazing. And yeah. the... One of the things that I've been really impressed with is that in this emergency, people from different companies are not caring about what company they're from. Everybody yeah. is just, you know, there's a fire burning and people are picking up hoses and they're really not caring about, about whose name's on the hose. They're just yeah. getting on the That obviously, that won't carry on completely, but I hope people will remember that way of working. And another thing, I suppose, we have a short window for this probably. Right now, it feels as if the public over quite a lot of the developed world have decided that people who know something aren't such a bad idea. Now, that, could, that could reverse very quickly. You know, it, it may be that it doesn't take long at all before uh, a great storm of fake news says that we never needed to shut down, we never needed to do that, we never needed to do that, and all yeah. of these experts are to blame and we should never listen to them again. So we probably have a shortish window to try to build on trust. and. Yeah. You know, and I think the more transparency and the more engagement we can do, the better. And people like Neil Ferguson, I think, have been from a period have been amazing at reaching out and being really, really clear and engaging with people about uncertainty. Professor Neil Ferguson led the study from Imperial College London, which modelled transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and predicted the number of people that could die under different government strategies. This study is ultimately what led the UK government to move away from its herd immunity strategy 
which involved allowing some spread of the virus in a bid to promote natural immunity in the population. However, Professor Ferguson's study demonstrated that this option could lead to 250,000 people dying, and forced the government to set stricter lockdown rules. Unfortunately, there has been some controversy surrounding Professor Ferguson when it was discovered that he himself had broken lockdown rules, arguably undermining the very advice that he had helped the government create. But the point still stands. Good things happen when we listen to scientists. Yeah, that surprised me. Um, you know, they did the research, the paper came out, and then it had such a, a direct and tangible impact on the, the, um, the strategy that the government chose to use. And it would be so refreshing just to see that in the future, I think. Yes, and, and, and this constant engagement about, about the uncertainties. I think, I think that's what's been so impressive, that, that from the scientists to the politicians tend to just say, we're taking scientific advice, this is the best thing to do. Whereas the scientists are tending to say, well, everything's pretty uncertain. This is what our modelling's saying. You know, this is the best thing to do because it's the best we've got. But, but we don't know, no. We just, we just think because... And, and I, I liked that material approach. As we neared the end of our conversation, Professor Davies wanted to remind people that behind all the numbers and statistics are real human beings who've had to deal with this disease, and many who have lost friends and relatives to COVID-19. The truth that has been highlighted by this pandemic is that when we ignore scientists, lives are lost. We need to trust the scientists and the experts and provide the necessary funding and opportunities so that the next time something like this comes around, we're ready. We see that the death statistics, um, some of us, I mean, there, there, are, there, there are people I know who had this disease. There are people I know whose relatives have died with this disease, which suddenly turns the curves, not into curves, but into something with real people. And that's when you particularly feel the, you know, the kind of tragedy of not using the science and not pushing on. And I hope one of the things that changes with the world when we come out of this is that we will prepare like, like preparing for effects of climate change as well as mitigating them, like preparing for the effects of fire, you know, of, of bushland fires as well as mitigating, that we will prepare for epidemics as well as mitigating ones that we have. We'll mm -hmm. try to have things in place. I want to give a huge thanks to Professor Davies for coming on the show. We have another episode coming soon with the rest of our conversation, where he tells us about how our bodies make complex organs from simple beginnings, how to grow organs in the lab, about shockingly rude reviewers on journal articles, and more. He also writes a blog called Waiting for the Cells to Grow, where he talks about life, science, and everything in between. He's a really good resource for this episode, and I think you should go and check it out. You can find the blog and learn more about his work at the Davies Lab website, and the links as usual will be in the show notes. The coronavirus miniseries is an opportunity to get your feedback. What you liked, what you didn't like, and what we could do differently, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at eusci.org.uk. Next time in our final episode of the coronavirus miniseries, we talk to Dr. Samantha Lysett, a computational biologist using virus genomes to track the transmission and spread of SARS-CoV-2. This podcast is edited by my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. Awesome podcast cover art was designed by our USI co-editor-in-chief, Apple Chu. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. I've been your host, Tom Edwick. Until next time, keep it science. Oh, Jamie's awesome. Oh yeah, you've met him, haven't you?
Yeah, um, he and his partner Katie, they teach swing dance at the Edinburgh University Swing Dance Society and I've been a member for a few years now. They are some of the loveliest people you'll ever meet. I love that they call themselves the Swing Doctors, that's their teaching name, because they both have PhDs. And if that's not enough to sway you, um, so I recently found out that Jamie owns a ship which is older than the Royal Yacht Britannia, and it's only registered as a ship accidentally because she's actually a 72-year-old canal boat called, I kid you not, the Saucy Mrs. Flumster. Forget boating with Boatface. We should definitely start a petition to rename the Sir David Attenborough. What a legend. Right? 